we are going to be in Acts this morning, in Acts chapter 4 specifically. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to be learning a little bit more about where the church is headed. Lost my clicker. And so where we've been in the first three chapters of Acts is we, we've really began to get a glimpse of, of the establishment of the early church. We began to get a glimpse of the, the power and the resources that were given to the church. We, we see the influence of the Holy Spirit coming upon the life of the church, and, and now we see the church growing rapidly uh, throughout Jerusalem and the Roman Empire. And, and now in chapters 4, we see a shift in the narrative, and we see a shift that lasts all the way to chapter 7. And, and as these um, churches are being sent out on mission, they begin to face this massive opposition. They begin to face opposition against their mission. They begin to face opposition against talking about Jesus. They are told to be quiet. They are be told to be keeping their beliefs to themselves. They are told not to evangelize. They are told to simply keep their faiths private. And so what we're going to examine this morning is this response of the disciples when they are told to privatize their faith. Now, when we think about this theme of of faith being private, that sounds pretty similar to our Canadian context, doesn't it? Uh, We very much live in an age, uh, especially since the 1960s and the rise of secularism, where where faith has become individualized, faith has become private, faith is something you practice in your own home, or faith is something we practice in these four walls. And yet, is that the truth of Christianity? No. And and so what are some ways that we see our culture... um, either phrases or circumstances where faith is supposed to be private in a Canadian context. What's some phrases or examples that you guys can think of in our culture? Pardon? Yeah, sort of beliefs on human life and human rights, right? Keep your views to yourself. We decide for what we want. Yeah. Yeah, that's good for you. I'm glad you're a Christian, but I have my faith. We don't talk about it. You don't tell me what to believe, and I don't tell you what to believe, right? And everyone gets along. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What are some other things that we can think about? And the privatization of our faith. Yeah, but even this concept of, of prayer and even reading Scripture in public. I had a friend who visited a little bit ago, and he was reading his Bible at a coffee shop in Edmonton. And he had someone approach him and say, um, this really makes me uncomfortable. Could you please put your Bible away? Complete stranger, right? And what's the implication? Go read your Bible at home, right? This is a, this is a public place, right? What are some other examples we can think of? Yeah, the the holding unacceptable views, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, the removal of religion from schools, and so even prayers in school, um, even evangelizing in school, even, even discussions in the classroom of teaching that all religions are the same and all religions are equal and we have to treat them as such, right? So educational systems is another major one. Yeah, in the workplace, 100%. You know, my sister's a nurse, and maybe I should have asked her before I shared this, but she, she is literally could get in trouble for sharing her faith as a nurse. Why? Because even though the nursing industry was started in, by the church, right, but it's this concept of, no, this is your workplace, this is a public sphere, you don't talk about God here, right? Secularized. We could go on forever with examples like this. But this is the culture in which we live. And and we experience it in our personal relationships. We experience it in structures like education and workplace and politics. This is the very context in which we live. And, And the question we have to ask ourselves is the church, do we just say, okay, this is our culture They want faith to be privatized. They want it to be individualized. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to confront anyone. We don't want to have a a discussion over truth and values and morals. And so we'll just sort of let it be. Should that be the posture of the church? No. And and so what I want to do this morning is examine uh, the story from the early church to see what does it mean to be bold What does it mean to speak for truth in a world that tells us to keep our faith to ourselves? And so let's start walking through this story together. And so Acts chapter 4, you can turn in your Bibles there again, and I'm just going to walk us through the Scripture together, and we are going to just make some observations as we go. And so Acts chapter 4, it says, And as they were speaking to the people... This is Peter and John. The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And what were they? They were greatly annoyed. Why are they annoyed? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so first of all, let's pause here for a second. Uh, which is the main group that is in opposition against the church at this point? The, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, right? And we see the Sadducees, they're this small group of, of ruling class families um, in the Jerusalem there. And they're annoyed. Why? Because the apostles are teaching and preaching something they disagree with, something they don't believe in. Now, what's interesting about the Sadducees, part of the reason why they're greatly annoyed right now is because they're a group, a sect that had believed that the Messiah, Messianic age had already come. So they weren't expecting Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ to come, and so they rejected who Jesus was. But not only that, they also rejected a belief in the resurrection. And so for Jesus to be resurrected, they also completely disagreed. And so they believed in the kingdom of God as this earthly, political, humanistic way. And so they were very involved in politics and the Roman Empire. And so what they see is the apostles preaching everything that they don't want to be preached. And so what do we see? Verse 3, 
And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. That's pretty crazy, hey? So what do we see at Pentecost? How many come to faith? 3,000. Now, now we're talking about 5,000 men, in other words, representing families. And so we look at this massive movement right on at the early onset of the early church. Now, the population of Jerusalem at this time, uh, a lot of scholars debate it, but it's probably around 50 to 100,000 people. It's, it's not this massive city. And so you, you think of a population... Uh, if we do 5,000 maybe times 3 or 5,000 times 5 with kids plus the 3,000 and all that, you're looking at a, quite a substantial movement that just explodes in that population. So this is why all the leaders are really taking notice here. And so verse 5, what happens? On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all of who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed Done to a crippled man, by what means has this man been healed? Now, we didn't cover this story, but what it went early on uh, before this arrest is, is that you see Peter and John heal this guy who cannot walk. They, they come up to this man who is lame and they, they pray in the name of Jesus that he could walk. And so all they do, all they're being brought forward for is helping this guy walk. Now, how many people think they should get in trouble for that. Is anyone anti-healing here? Is anyone anti-let's take someone out of the wheelchair and help them walk? Like, this is what they're getting in trouble for. And, and so what we're seeing there is Peter and John realize that they are on trial for much more than this. They're saying, are we seriously here, here for healing the sick man? No, we are here for a deeper issue. And the issue was they were followers of Jesus who were teaching that this miracle points to Jesus. And so this is, this is what they say. Verse 10, this is where they really get at it. He said, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you what? That's pretty bold to say when you're on trial right now. I mean, the easy thing would be like, okay, we know we healed this guy. We, we spoke in the name of Jesus. Let's be friendly here. But no, they go on offense right now. They're saying, wait a second, you're bringing us to trial. We're going to bring you to trial. You crucified Jesus. And so they, they make that pretty bold statement. Then whom God raised from the dead. What's the last thing the Sadducees wanted to hear? about resurrection. And then they say, by him, this man is standing before you well. Isn't that powerful? And they're saying, you want to argue against us? Well, here's this guy that was miraculously healed. He's standing here. Standing, literally, right? 
And, and so there's this offense that they're going on, and this is where they really call him out. Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. Now, now what is this word cornerstone? What is this in reference to? Well, the word cornerstone goes back to this Old Testament reference, this passage that Peter's audience, the Sadducees, would have been very familiar with. And it comes from Psalm 118, verse 22, which says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And what this was, this was a prophecy speaking about the rejection of the Messiah, how they rejected the Messiah. Now, what are the Sadducees doing right now? They're rejecting the Christ. They're rejecting the Messiah. And so Peter is showing them and he's telling them that Jesus is the Messiah and even the rejection and the crucifixion of Jesus was actually foretold and prophesied by the Psalms. And so if you guys actually understood your scripture, if you understood the story, you guys would follow Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And then they say something even more bold. Verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. That's a very exclusive claim, isn't it? We're going to talk more about exclusivity in a little bit more. It says, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a key verse, but we're going to talk more about that later. Verse things, verse 13, so how, is, how do they respond to this? What's their response to everything that Peter and John had just declared? It says, now when they saw the what? The boldness. They were very bold in what they just said, weren't they? They perceived that they were uneducated common men. Now, what's this referencing? This isn't referencing that they were illiterate. This isn't saying they couldn't read and write. This isn't saying that they didn't have any training. What this is referencing is we didn't train these guys. They didn't go through the right rabbinic training schools. They weren't trained by our rabbis. Um, So this statement is more about being theological outsiders than it is about necessarily intellectualism. And it's basically a way of saying they don't have the right degree. They don't have the right credentials to talk to us. And so the accusation is we didn't train these guys, so what do they know? But they were shocked because of this. Now, why do you think they were shocked in their boldness? Because who had been training and educating them? Jesus! Probably the best rabbi you could ever imagine to train and educate. Probably the most controversial at that time too. But the reason that they're shocked is because they didn't go to our rabbinic schools and yet look at their knowledge, look at their boldness, look at their confidence. And it's because they are trained by Jesus and they're empowered by the Spirit. And so this council looks at these ordinary guys who are not trained in the correct manner and they realize something. They were astonished, as we continue to read in verse 13, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? The very presence and training of Jesus shows itself in very bold ways. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them emphasized the standing 
they had nothing to say in opposition. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which means word had already gotten out about this miracle. People already knew what had happened. Again, this is something that's out of the ordinary, blew people's minds. And it says, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people. And again, do they really care about physical healing? I mean, if that's what's spreading among the people, they'd be very happy. It's, it's more than that. In order that it may be spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. What name do you think they're talking about? Jesus, so that they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So again, the real issue here is preaching the name of Jesus. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. Now these are Sadducees. What's going to be the logical answer? Who are they supposed to listen to? We listen to God every time, right? And it says, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. Now, pretty fascinating story, isn't it? Uh, I want to focus in this story on a specific verse for a little bit. And I think one of the key verses in the context of this story is verse 12. And this verse 12 again says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, this is really what gets Peter and John in trouble here. This is really what gets the apostles and the disciples in trouble is because if they just went around healing people and they just said, we're going to believe and talk about Jesus and do amazing things through him and you guys believe what you want to believe and you Sadducees, you can hang out here and you religious group, you'll be happy over here and we'll have our little corner of truth, they would have been fine, right? I mean, the context in which they were in, the Roman society was very much a pluralistic one. At this point in history, Rome had conquered all these different nations. And when you conquer these different nations, what comes along with it? Different religions, different beliefs. And so the Roman culture actually was extremely pluralistic, meaning they allowed many religions to form and function under the Roman Empire. Um, and so what we see then is this, this worldview that clashes because Christianity comes along and says, you know what, we don't think we can get along in a pluralistic society that takes Caesar as Lord. Because what would happen is, is all these different religions would be free to practice and they do their own thing, but the Romans would remind them who's ultimately in control of the universe. Caesar, right? Caesar's in control. The Roman emperor's in control. And so you practice your religions, but if you just make a few little sacrifices, then you can function in this society. Christianity comes along and says, 
No. Caesar's not Lord. There's only one king in the universe, and his name is Jesus. And we're not going to live pluralistically where we'll say, oh, everyone's a little bit right, and we'll make sacrifices to appease Caesar. No. There's only one name under heaven which gives salvation. And so the claim that the apostles made was this controversial claim of exclusivity. And the claim that the apostles made is just as controversial today, isn't it? It's just as controversial. It's the claim that the only hope for salvation is Jesus, amen? We, we have to believe that the only way, the only way to know and understand God is Jesus, amen? The only way to heaven is Jesus. The only way for this world to be made right is Jesus. Very exclusive claims. Now, does that work well in a Canadian context and society? No. Yeah, not, not anymore, you're right. And, and, and really, the, the issue then is this one word, exclusivity. And, and we, have to, we have to navigate this thought then. How do we address this? How do we, how do we ponder this? How do we understand it? Well, one of the most popular concepts and illustrations uh, actually came originally from a guy named Leslie Newbegin. Has anyone heard of that name before? He was, he was a missionary in India, and, and he wrote a, a book called the, A Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, which Canada is very much defined as pluralistic. And in his experience in India, he would hear a common parable. He was trying to share the gospel, but what he began to realize is that everyone has all these different beliefs, but all these beliefs are very subjective. Subjective meaning what is true for, is true for me, and what is true for you is true for you. But the implication of truth is if something is true, the implication is something has to be false, right? And what he read and what he realized in, in India in his time there was this mentality of pluralism that could be summarized in a parable. And this is a parable they do often hear about an elephant. And it's this understanding of what do you have when a bunch of blind people come and observe an elephant? And so what do we have? We have one guy, he's pulling on the trunk. And what does he think the trunk is? It's a snake, right? We have one guy pulling on the, the uh, tusk. And what does he think it is? It's a, a spear. We have one guy grabbing the leg. And what does he think it is? A tree. We have one guy grabbing the ear. And what does he think it is? A fan. What does the one guy pushing the side of the elephant think? It's a wall. And then the guy grabbing the tail thinking it's a... A rope. <laughs> and, and what this frame, this parable was that religion is the same. That all different religions and all different world beliefs uh, all have different perspectives and we all have limited perspectives. And so each worldview and each religion is sort of holding on to part of the truth, but none of us can see the full truth. So how do we respond to this? How do we understand this? Well, Leslie finally realized, pondering and questioning this parable in his ministry work in India, he began to realize that, you know what, as each person has this experience with the elephant, um, in order to tell this parable, what perspective do you need? You, you get to the perspective of seeing everyone else is wrong, <laughs> that everyone else has part of the truth. And so to even tell the parable, 
you put yourself in a position as not a blind person. Isn't that interesting? And so it's still a very exclusive claim. And so what are you doing with this worldview? And again, this is a very prominent worldview in Canada as well. What you are doing is claiming to be able to do the very thing that you are telling everyone else that they could not do. Isn't that fascinating? To claim that all religions are right or all religions have part of the truth, you are claiming to have a superior vantage point from everyone. Isn't that interesting? That's why you can say all these views and perspectives don't have the full picture because who at the end of the day has the full picture? Well, God, obviously, but in this parable, me, right? The person telling the parable. And, and so really, when we, when we talk about these claims of, of Jesus being the only way and exclusivity, what we're really talking about is truth, right? We're talking about this question of what is truth. This is really about a pursuit of truth. And again, the implication of a truth is that something has to be false, now again, our culture reminds us that religion is just a personal preference. Re- religion is just a subject of thought that we hold on to. Um, it's, that really comes from Immanuel Kant, if you've heard of that name, who's sort of the founder of Western philosophy, which basically told us that religions are good, but they're only helpful for society when they're subjective. In other words, they're only helpful when we all have a privatized, individualized faith and we don't say anyone else is wrong. But the problem is we are dealing with truth. And the most important question we can ask in light of this is, well, how do we define what is true then? Because when we realize that all religious claims are exclusive, And all religious claims are making a statement about something. We have to compare and contrast. So even let's just take a a popular belief and understanding about the historicity of the resurrection. Well, what does Islam believe about uh, or the crucifixion? What does Islam believe about the crucifixion? Does anyone know? Yeah, Jesus never physically died on the cross. That he was taken up to heaven as a prophet. And so they believe that Jesus actually died on the cross. They believe someone else took his place physically. Now, historically, what's the most evidence, probably historical event of all of history we have is the crucifixion of Jesus, that he actually died. And so think of that. Okay, now go to a Jewish understanding of crucifixion and resurrection. Well, what do Jews believe about the crucifixion and resurrection? That Jesus died, but did he rose again? No, they don't believe in Jesus' resurrection. Now go to Christianity. What do we believe? We believe in both, right? Crucifixion and resurrection. And so all these are exclusive truth claims. The question is not subjective what is true for you and let's get uh, get along. The question is what is actually true, right? What is actually true, That's what we need to be pursuing as the church. So we're talking about exclusivity based on truth. And as soon as you make a truth statement, you are drawing lines between what is true and false. Now, what is is beautiful about this, though, when we think about Christianity? The, The gospel tells us that 
Christianity has a different type of exclusivity. Why? Because we, we realize that because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for us, that our acceptance with God is not based on anything about us or what we have done. Which means that who has access to the king of the universe? Who has access to God? Everyone. We all have it. It's all there for us. It's, it's all an invitation of God for all of humanity. So if, if we realize that it's not a person's intellectualism, it's not their moral record, it's not their education, it's not their race, it's not their political viewpoint, God gives salvation to all as a gift who will repent and receive it that way in finding truth. And I love how Tim Keller says this. He says, all religions are exclusive, which is true. But he says, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. (laughs) Isn't that a beautiful way to put it? And it's so true. Because the gift of the gospel, the gift of what Jesus has done is an invitation for all. A gift for all. And I believe that alone should change our our boldness in how we engage our culture because there is a historical truth that we are dealing with that changes everything and everyone is invited into that truth. Again, Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. And, And when we believe this, far from making ourselves arrogant and judgmental and prideful as if we somehow got the superior knowledge than everyone else and we found the truth. What instead it does, it actually humbles us, amen? Because there's nothing that we did to know God. It was all Jesus. And instead of of arrogantly imposing our, our views on others, instead it allows us to come to them with with love and graciousness, and acceptance, and say, let's pursue truth together and see where it goes. Because truth will always find Jesus. And so the boldness then is is not how our culture would define boldness as arrogance and rash and hypocrisy, but what we see instead is a boldness that brings us into a humility and a love and grace and desire for people simply to know truth. It humbles us. And so what do we see next in the story? Let's, let's continue on. Let's finish this story off in this section. Verse 23, it says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, and again, what did they say to them? Be quiet. Don't talk about Jesus. Keep it private. We don't want to see you disrupting the city anymore. So verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. What are they reminding themselves of? Who's in control? God. God is sovereign. God is in control. All these rulers and authorities think they have power, but God is in control who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, again, King David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, 
This is part of what we read this morning in Psalm 2. It says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so why, why do we see them quoting Psalm 2? Because Psalm 2 reminded them that nations are going to rage against the Messiah. They're going to rage against God, but it is God who will ultimately overcome their rebellion. It is God who will overcome their evil and injustice. And the early church experienced this firsthand of being oppressed and persecuted by authorities. And yet they realized that God is sovereign and in control. And God will bring victory over opposition. And what it did, it reminded them, encouraged them that no matter what they went through, the truth is that God would be faithful in overcoming justice. That's why they bring up Psalm 2. Verse 27 says, For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now here they're looking at and saying, you know what? We understand these circumstances are not ideal. This complicates our life a great deal. But we trust this is your plan, God. They submit themselves to the plan of God even when it becomes difficult. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants and continue to speak your word with all what? With all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They saw what simply helping a lame man walk could do. <laughs> it could point to the power of Jesus in that city like they could never imagine. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was what? Shaken. Again, this is this powerful movement of the Holy Spirit coming once again. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with what? With boldness. Amen? And I think what this passage reminds us is, is there's going to be times and places in our life and existence where we are going to face opposition. There's going to be times and places where we face persecution because of our faith. And, and the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to allow those times to lead us into the privatization of our faith? Are, are those times going to lead us to believing that our faith is just subjective? And that what that person believes is okay and what I believe is okay and let's all just get along and not talk about what is true. Will those times lead you to simply huddling in and not pressing forward in the kingdom of God? See, what's beautiful about what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the church is, is we see in verse 29 and we see in verse 31, the Holy Spirit gives us boldness. The Holy Spirit empowers us with a boldness. And, and here's the deal, what we see them praying. We don't see them praying, God, these Sadducees are against us. God, we need you to remove them from their position of power. 
Do we see them praying that? No. Do, do we see them praying, God, our freedom was taken away, we are arrested, God, give us freedom. Do they pray for that? No. They're not praying, God, get rid of our trial, get rid of our trouble, God, crush our enemies. Are they praying that? No. Are they saying, God, make our reputation good in Jerusalem so people know that we were falsely accused and people are against us? Are they praying that even? No. They don't pray any of that. Isn't that fascinating? What are they praying that would be changed? Who are they praying that would be changed? Well, yeah, they'd be praying for people's salvation, but first and foremost in this prayer, they're praying that they would be changed. And changed how? Filled with the Spirit so that they could be bold in the midst of opposition. They pray for boldness. So they remind themselves that God is sovereign, God is in control, with the implication being we don't have to be in control, right? When in history where we see when the church takes control and power, is it a good thing? (laughs) Pretty much unanimously in history, when the church has power and control, it is not a good thing. Why? Because that's not what we're called to. They realize that God is sovereign. God is in control. They submit to God in that fashion, and they pray, God, because you are sovereign, we can endure anything. We don't need our circumstances to change as much as we'd like it to. It's not wrong to pray for circumstances to change, but they realize that we can endure anything in boldness because of what Jesus has done. Amen? Amen. So let me just close with a, a final few questions. The thought then, in light of this, how, how is boldness shown in our lives then? In our day-to-day lives, how do we display boldness in the gospel? And, and, and our culture has a, a much more different understanding of boldness. When we, we think about boldness in a cultural perspective, it more implies I'm going to say what I want, I'm going to do what I want, I'm going to push my agenda on everyone else. Is that the boldness that we're talking about here with the apostles? No. It's a boldness that says in light of opposition, we are going to stand for truth. And so how is boldness shown in our life? Well, a first thing that I can think of primarily is don't live a privatized faith. Amen? That's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to go to the workplace. It's easy to enter in the public sphere. It's easy in our conversations with non-Christians friends. It's easy to just say, I'm going to believe what I want to believe, you believe what you want to believe, and let's just get along. We can't live a privatized faith. Another major thing I can think of is to be bold is, is stand against the cultural push of subjective faith. What I mean by that is we have to realize that Christianity makes a truth claim. It makes historical truth claims. And the question isn't what works for you, that's subjectivism. The question is what is true? And if we have conversations with other people and we say, okay, well, you believe that, that's okay, we don't need to talk about this, that disregards the gospel, does it not? It devalues the gospel. 
Where, where we as Christians say, no, there is truth, can we humbly pursue it together? Not in arrogance, not in argumentation, but simply, can we pursue truth together? Because there is objective truth. There isn't just subjective understandings of who God is. And so in light of that, I think another third application would be then, we have a calling then as the people of God to pursue truth. Again, we talked about this a little last week. What, what is the literal meaning of disciple? Does anyone remember? Yeah. Well, under a teacher, if you're under a teacher, you are a, a student, a learner, right? The literal meaning of disciple is learner, which means that our calling as people of learning is to pursue truth. When we say faith is privatized and subjectivized, we realize that, oh, we've lost all our calling of disciple-making because now truth means nothing anymore. Truth is irrelevant where God says, no, pursue me in truth. And so let me pray to this extent for us. And I'll call the team up as I pray too. Lord, we come before you realizing how easy it is in our Canadian culture to simply privatize our faith. Lord, we, we realize how offensive it can even be to others to say that there is objective truth in our beliefs about who Jesus is and what has happened in history. And so, Lord, we, we pray, first of all, that you would, you would give us a graciousness, a compassionate heart in our boldness, that we would speak to others with humility, that you would remove any pride or arrogance from us, but that we would simply see others desiring to know truth as well. And so, Lord, we, we know that because of this exclusive claim of Christianity, there will be opposition. There will be fights and battles against it, whether from our friends, whether from authorities, whatever it may be. But, Lord, I pray in light of that, you would just remind us of the boldness that come in you, the, the boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus in any circumstance, in any context. And, and Lord, we realize that there's going to be there's going to be circumstances in life that make that difficult, that are going to hinder that in some capacity, that push against us in that mission. But Lord, I pray that those times wouldn't draw us away from you or away from each other, but would draw us further into knowing you and pursuing truth and not just knowing truth, but speaking truth to the world around us. And so Lord, we pray for your boldness that comes by your Spirit. Let us pray for that and all the other distractions in this world around us, the things that draw us our attention, the things that we want to be bold and passionate about that ultimately don't matter to you. Lord, give us boldness for what matters, the proclamation of your gospel so people can come to a true knowledge of who you are. We pray this would be done for your glory and for our good. And then the only name of Jesus, the only path to salvation, the only way to know God, we pray. Amen.